Welcome back to Peds Ortho, the official pause in the podcast. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and I am joined by my co-hosts. This is Josh Holt from uh, University of Iowa. This is Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt. And this is Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital of Colorado. It is October 2023, and uh, we have the special privilege of being joined by Dr. Henry Ellis from Texas Scottish Rite Hospital. Dr. Ellis, thank you so much for uh, making the time for a late evening Zoom call. I appreciate you having me. Thanks. Yeah, looking forward to it. I want to say thank you to Nuvesa for sponsoring uh, this episode and really for supporting the POSNA mission. As our listeners know, uh, their support goes to POSNA, not to the podcast, so it certainly doesn't affect any of the the content of the show. And uh, with that, let's jump right in. So uh, what we want to do first is, Dr. Ellis, get to know you a little bit. So if you don't mind, we've got a little sort of hodgepodge of questions uh, to let the audience into your brain and into your life. So first up, what would you have been if you were not an orthopedic surgeon? Boy, that's a good question. Uh, if I wasn't an orthopedic surgeon, probably would have ended up being uh, a small town general practitioner. Wow, nice. You you sound like someone who's probably set on ortho. It didn't sound like there were a lot of other obvious choices floating around in your brain. Is that fair to say that ortho was sort of the plan for a while? Yeah, I think that was fair to say. I think uh, my grandfather was a small town GP, did some surgeries, a lot of house calls, got me sparked into uh, the uh, the field of medicine uh, at a young age, but uh, then I had a few other distant relatives, uncles that were orthopedic surgeons that took me under their wing and uh, really just been exposed to that ever since. So it's was, it was always been part of the plan. And, uh, you know, for the audience, I, I understand your practice about 80% sports medicine, about 20% uh, trauma and fracture care. But I'm wondering, are there any OR pet peeves that you have, things that, you know, just really get under your skin in the OR? Uh, yeah, you know, I think uh, probably my biggest OR pet peeves is uh, when people get in, uh, when a resident or fellow comes in and they're unprepared. Mm. Uh, you know, sometimes you don't want to waste your time if they didn't put the time and effort into the case uh, themselves. Uh, that's probably uh, my number one pet peeve. Uh, you know, other than that, uh, you know, I like uh, I like an OR to be, uh, you know, professional, but I want us to all be natural. So, you know, I don't like a stiff OR. So, you know, I want us to, uh, we all need to do our job. We need to do it professionally and in a relaxed state. So, um, you know, my second pet peeve is when people are a little too stiff in the OR. I think we need to be, uh, you know, attention to detail, but we also need to be comfortable in who we are and what we're doing. Uh, so, you know, that's uh, that's probably number two. I like that. That's not an, an answer I think I've heard or would expect, but the walk, trying to walk that balance with the OR culture, that's great. And uh, how about, what is your preferred clinic attire? What do you, what do you... What should the orthopedic surgeon wear to clinic? Uh, well, maybe a collared shirt, you know, a pullover perhaps. Um, you know, I think uh, I think you've got to look uh, professional, um, but, uh, you know, not too relaxed. Um, I've shown up in a little bit of a golf polo shirt before. You know, I think that's, uh, I think that's my preferred uh, way of uh, looking at it, but I think it may take a little gray hair. I wore a coat and tie for <laughs> a long time, but as you get a little bit older, you uh, tend not to want to put on that tie, so... Not, not that I'm old, but maybe it took me 10 years to root and get rid of the tie. If anyone can pull off, pull off the uh, golf polo shirt, it's the sports surgeon. So I think you're probably pretty safe right there. And what are you, you going to be for Halloween? You got a costume picked out? I don't um, have a Halloween costume uh, picked out. You know what? I paused last year. I dressed up as Haggard um, from 
Harry Potter and uh, thought it was pretty good. I may have to recreate that if my kids will let me. They nice. were a little embarrassed. You know, <laughs> Harry Potter isn't quite as cool as it used to be. I won't tell my kids. They're they're in deep right now, but uh, they're they're five and seven. They don't they don't quite know what's cool yet. I'm sure soon they'll be telling me. That's right. That's right. Well, um, congratulations on your upcoming AOSSM Traveling Fellowship. Where where are you going to be traveling? Uh, the fellowship is uh, in Latin America, uh, in South America. So we start off in Mexico City, uh, then we'll go into uh, Peru, Colombia, uh, Argentina. So it'll be a great, great experience. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, that's amazing. And um, last thing I wanted to bring up, you guys just started a new pediatric sports medicine fellowship at TSRH. That is super exciting. I know there's some literature I think maybe you've been involved with that uh, really shows what a need there is for training in that specific sub subspecialty. Um, when when do you expect to, to kick that off and uh, any idea sort of what, what that's going to look like right out of the gate? Yeah, well, let's say, uh, you know, it's really a sports medicine fellowship. So ACGME accreditation would only, you know, is is really for uh, not there isn't an ACGME accreditation for pediatric sports medicine. So uh, the, the fellowship is a sports medicine fellowship. Now, the primary, um, you know, rotations are going to be here with us at Scottish Rite. So uh, 75% of the time will be focused on a lot of what we do, which is primarily pediatric sports. Uh, they'll have uh, other opportunities uh, for some adult sports medicine exposure as well. So uh, we're really excited about it. Uh, we've had some uh, international fellows, uh, but we really wanted to, um, as we rolled it out, we wanted it to be an ACGM accreditation, particularly because uh, in the sports medicine world, to sit for your CAQ or to be a member of the AOSSM, uh, you really need to have an accredited fellowship. So it was important for us to produce fellows that were had opportunities uh, to pursue careers and, and be a part of the professional society of AOSSM. So uh, we're really excited for it. Uh, we're going to roll it out. You know, we're currently going through the the match, um, the San Francisco match program, which we're interviewing uh, this winter for a 2025. Um, and if, uh, you know, we're looking forward to great candidates who may be interested in 2024 out of the match. Uh, so we're currently interviewing for that. So we're excited about it. Uh, I think there's a great opportunity for them. And for the audience out there, any trainees listening, pediatric sports medicine is really a phenomenal niche to practice. Uh, please, you know, keep your eye on this. And it must be just one of a, a small handful, correct? I, I know you said it's a sports medicine fellowship technically, but, uh, you know, to be focused on pediatrics, there's, am I correct? There's just a handful of programs with that sort of uh, goal? There's a lot of pediatric orthopedic fellowships that have a very strong sports medicine opportunity and exposure. Um, and so that definitely is um, an option for many trainees, but there's not a lot of sports medicine accredited fellowships that also that, that have a real strong emphasis in pediatric sports medicine, Boston Children's being the only other one that I'm aware of. Very, very exciting for TSRH and great opportunity. Well, with that, let's let's get into the literature. So I uh, was super interested to see the title and read your recent paper. It's uh, currently in EPUB ahead of print in JPO called Comparison of Gait and Functional Outcomes Between Open and Arthroscopic Treatment of Adolescent and Young FAI. Regular listeners to this podcast will know there's sort of been a growing body of literature in this area recently, sort of looking at arthroscopic patients versus the surgical hip dislocation patients and trying to figure out what kind of outcomes, you know, do they really end up in the same place? And the literature sort of seemed to suggest they do eventually end up in the same place. And so you guys had a very, very nice, uh, well-polished study, had 28 patients who had surgical hip dislocations, and then 27 who had arthroscopic procedures. 
um, sort of true to the demographic. They were mostly females, and both groups really had similar improvements, good bumps in their Harris HIP scores, and they all returned to a steady gait by about one year without any major significant differences. So I, I want to get into several of the details of this paper, but what's sort of the origin story? How this how this develop? Well, you know, as I, I uh, as I came into Scottish Rite as an arthroscopist, um, you know, we were, um, you know, my partners and I were always looking at the condition of femoral tabular impingement, labral pathology, uh, with kind of that overarching question of what's a better option: a surgical hip dislocation or a hip arthroscopy. Um, and in truth, you know, we we know that they're fairly equivalent, but is there one that may be uh, more beneficial versus the other? Is there, uh, we we believe, and we've looked at our data for a long time, we believe the clinical outcomes are fairly similar. Uh, so part of our, you know, research efforts at Scottish Rite and, and give credit to Dan Cicado uh, for starting a, what we, we refer to as a hip registry. So every hip patient undergoes a certain protocol, one of which is uh, inviting them to the movement science lab. Uh, to get some preoperative and then one, two, five-year uh, data as well. So you know, utilizing that data that was already in place, we were able to not only look at uh, perhaps the clinical outcome, but maybe uh, some functional uh, outcome as well, uh, which, you know, obviously this, what you alluded to this uh, study really concluded. Um, so it was a great, great effort. Um, and, you know, surprisingly, I always, uh, as an arthroscopist, I always, uh, you know, want to talk about the the bad dangers of big open surgical hip surgery. And so uh, clearly I have uh, no legs to stand on because it seems like they're fairly equivalent. And even though they do an osteotomy of the greater troke, it seems to be that they all have full recovery uh, at a year. And so that really uh, was my interest, you know, working with uh, Will Morris and in our lab with Alex uh, Lowen. uh, I I really thought that we would see some hip abductor uh, problems and weakness and more of a Trendelum Mergate, but uh, I guess I don't guess I can't say that anymore. You know, you you went right to the sort of what I thought was the incredible part of the study is all of this gate lab data on these patients who, you know, would not at most institutions be be visiting a gate lab and really getting into the nuance of their of their gate. So like you mentioned, the, the big takeaway for me was that at one year post-op, there was no residual abductor weakness in, in either group. You know, despite the general sort of equipoise between the two groups, that arthroscopy group, they could balance for about five seconds longer on one leg than the open dislocation group. Do, do you think that's significant? Is there is there something to that? Yeah, I mean, I think you probably hit the nail on the head is, is you know, what's, uh, what is statistically significant differences and, you know, is it really clinically significant? And when you really look at the doubles and the details, it's really a longitudinal study, right? Because most of the kids that had surgical hips were my senior partners, David Ezra, Dan Cicado early on, and then 2016 on we primarily did hip arthroscopy. And I'll say, when you come from a sports uh, background, you know, we, we emphasize post-operative rehabilitation, physical therapy with a little bit more emphasis than uh, perhaps some P, some some of the P's orthopedic side. So I, I would say that I would tell you I'd probably attribute that to some of my emphasis on postoperative rehabilitation over the surgical procedure itself. Uh, mm-hmm. Because you know, being again in sports medicine, I want a sports therapist. We're focusing on return to play uh, criteria, and uh, I just think it's a little different uh, than perhaps uh, earlier in the study. That's uh, that's a very insightful point. So if I'm doing a surgical hip dislocation for uh, a big cam lesion and i don't think you know i don't think it's amenable to a scope 
What kind of physical therapy regimen would you recommend that I, you know, sign that patient up for after their, you know, greater trochosteotomy is healed? Huh? Yeah, so I think probably uh, early on, uh, the most important thing is, uh, you know, motion with protection, right? I mean, you really want to avoid the extremes of motion as much as you can, whether it's a surgical hip uh, or a um, or a hip arthroscopy. I think uh, from a surgical hip perspective, you got to protect your osteotomy, so you got to minimize any of your, um, you, you know, your active, you know, your active hip abduction. Other than that, I think the most important thing is you want to avoid, uh, you know, extremes of hip flexion. So, you know, I, I usually don't think you need to go past 90 degrees of hip flexion for the first uh, three weeks. Um, and then, you know, after that, you can progress. Uh, but motion is so important. I really think it helps with uh, prevention of adhesion or scar tissue. I think it really helps uh, circulate the synovial fluid, improves healing of the labrum, uh, particularly if there's any cartilage damage that you're treating as well. So uh, to me, the real emphasis is protecting your surgery, uh, but then early motion to really give yourself the optimal outcome. And let's say I'm a soccer player and I have a cam lesion. It hurts when I kick and you're going to um, scope and uh, do an osteochondroplasty. How, Doc, how long am I going to be in physical therapy after surgery? Yeah, you know, I give everyone pretty much a rough estimate of about uh, three months of aggressive physical therapy, really hoping that at three months they're doing most on their own, having the physical therapy kind of guide that later half or the later phases of physical therapy. I think physical therapy is really good for the overdoers and the underdoers, right? And so if you get someone who's pretty good, they can probably go to physical therapy once a week, once maybe, you know, maybe twice a week. Um, but it's really the ones that you worry about on the bookends of that bell curve, the people that are going to go to the extremes that need to be calmed down or the people that aren't going to mm -hmm. do anything that need to do something. And so, it, you know, I, I'm probably not as rigid except for those bookends, you know, of, of the bell curve and to, to really emphasize, boy, you got to go twice a week uh, at least for three months. Uh, but everyone in the middle can can kind of hear, um, you know, any, everyone in the middle can kind of gaze based on their resources and their ability to, uh, to travel. And, you know, I think an underutilized resource is athletic trainers at the school. You know, many of them are now familiar with hip preservation surgery. They're familiar with the rehabilitation. They have access to a stationary bike. Um, and so, boy, I think you get good athletic trainers. We need to open up, you know, good communication with them and to coordinate between the therapists and athletic trainers uh, so that, you know, everyone can work together for that. So to dovetail on one of our recent episodes, I'm wondering if you have anything in your mind for how you identify those bookend patients and should we be doing catastrophizing scores or is there anything else we can do pre-op to, to figure out who that is? That's, that's like the million dollar question, right? Uh, can we identify who's going to give us a bad outcome? <laughs> uh, I have a lot of interest in that, um, you know, whether it's pain, catastrophizing, anxiety scales, uh, depression scales, coping scales, resiliency scales, you know, it's a little bit like an alphabet soup. So it's really hard <laughs> as an orthopedic surgeon to figure out which one is the best. Um, and, and then again, uh, you know, I've, I've done this for pediatric ACL surgeries where we've looked at some measures about coping skills. Sometimes it's just a gestalt. You like walk in a room and you're like, man, I, what, you know, you're, you know, I got to worry about you and you probably can't even put your finger on it or a PRO doesn't tell you it. So, um, you know, it's a million dollar question to try to figure that out, you know, and sometimes I think you got to talk to the patient, figure out what their anxiety level is, what kind of person they are. 
Um, and then, you know, you know, using your staff around you to kind of get a feel, maybe even talking to mom. I'm always surprised by that kid who's like a straight A student who just seems to be a really good kid. Sometimes I underplay how much anxiety they have and how aggressive they are at following the rules and being super diligent, even over diligent to get there. So, um, yeah, Carter, I think that's a great question. I, I wish we really knew the answer to it. And I, I'm really hoping in the next 10 years, we'll be able to identify those for all of the surgeries that we do, scoliosis, ACL, and hip press. So another great question that we've asked on this podcast before, I want to work on our inner rater reliability. Based on the uh, the four host faces on your Zoom screen right now, who would you say has the highest resilience and grit score on your gestalt if we were all in your clinic uh, preoperatively? Uh, is that the same person or a, yeah. like is resilient, resiliency and grit the same individual? Or I, I don't know. Do you have a different gestalt scale for resiliency and grit? Uh, let's see. I'm going to go with... Um, I'm going to go with Craig with grit and uh, Josh with resiliency. The correct answer is Julia. I'm sorry. I'm both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Julia is eight months pregnant and she's still awake. So congratulations. I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> I think you have made excellent choices. Dr. Ellis, can I, I want to ask you a question. So, you know, at my, at my institution, our, our adult sports med docs do really do most of our ped sports as well. And they're out at our sports med center where they have clinic with the therapists and the therapy gym is right there. And the therapist comes and sees them pre-op in the clinic. And I'm very jealous of the setup that they have for post-op PT. So for my hip patients, I'm oftentimes a little bit in the dark of what they're actually doing at therapy. And I try and give them some algorithm what to do, but I, I feel like I'm a little bit a little bit left out of the post-op PT sports world. So for someone like me or someone who's starting a practice, what advice would you give for setting up like a post-op therapy protocol? Do you meet with the therapist? Do you, you know, have them go to courses? Is there, is there something that someone like me could do to make sure I'm getting the right therapy for my post-op hip patients? You know, Josh, I think that's a, that's a great question. And I'll tell you early on in my practice this is probably what I stress the most about. I felt pretty well-trained surgically, but I felt like I wasn't as well-trained for any kind of like non-operative or physical therapy um, involved. And even, I mean, even, even beyond, uh, you know, even beyond post-operative physical therapy, just in general, non-operative treatments, I felt like I wasn't as good as I wish I, I, I wish I was because we're so focused on surgical treatment. You know, when I arrived at my hospital, the first thing I did was sit down with the, phys the pediatric uh, physical therapist because I wanted to know what's the difference between adult PT and pediatric PT. And so there were some key concepts. You know, number one is you never want to get the parents involved. Number two is you don't want to make the PT too difficult. So you wanted to simplify some of the exercises, even for your adolescent patients. And so I, I took what some well-published hip preservation um, PT protocols and we sat down and I wanted them to give me a pediatric phase to it. So that's number one. Uh, the second thing is, you know, I think a lot of times when you take a job at a pediatric hospital, many times your outreach team uh, will schedule you to meet with pediatricians um, because that's the main referral source. Well, 
I actually asked them the different. I said, I want to meet as many physical therapists in the city as I can. And so um, I did all of my outreach efforts with the physical therapy and athletic training uh, personnel in the area. And over time, I think I really got to know those that knew hip well, knew hip rehab well, um, and, and could really manage the kids and the families really well. So um, I would say that, you know, at least in our practice, I, I spent a lot of attention trying to learn that within my community. And and that's another thing is, is you got to learn your community because, you know, every community is a little bit different. And you got to add your flavor to the community, but you can't be, you know, the yin to the yang if the community is the yang. And so it's, it's a it's a definite balance uh, within your community. Yeah, that's like great. That. And that's then great. one other follow up on that, you know, you mentioned advancing some motion things at three weeks. Do you start therapy at three weeks? Um, that's a great model. I would say in the adults, uh, you know, the models to start physical therapy really quickly. Well, I found that in kids, they don't really, they, they heal really well and they don't have the same kind of stiffness and, you know, you don't have to be as aggressive early on. And so that was one of the things that the physical therapist and I talked about was sometimes you can over physical therapy a kid too quickly because they think of them as an adult. And so I give a very detailed home exercise program for the first two or three weeks because I don't want them to start too quickly um, because most, again, most of the kids heal really well. And so um, I would say my goal is really within the first 14 days, maybe not quite three weeks, but they've got to do some simple stuff at home first. Um, I don't push them to therapy right away. So um, in this field of research now, the uh, surgical hip dislocations versus arthroscopy for FAI, it seems like the glaring unanswered question is now the really short-term recovery. You know, I, I think it's been really interesting over the last few years and now with your paper to say, okay, wow, like the surgical hip dislocations do really well. They do just as well at six months, at a year. But at the same time, you know, I think if you asked any of the four of us, would we rather have our cam scoped or have a surgical dislocation, we would all uh, take the scope, please. So what what do you think is that the the crucial time period where the scope does make a difference? Is it is it just as short as six weeks or you know, when's it significant? Yeah, you know, I think I think we still need to tease that out a little bit. Um and, and we don't know that from our data, but I'm hoping we will in the future when we uh we can gain, you know, a little bit better understanding. Uh, you know, I, I do think the scope, you know, has a lot of value in the adolescent population, particularly um, in those that have the extremes of motions, your dancers and your gymnasts. Um, I just don't know how well they recover from a larger open procedure. We don't have that data here. And obviously, uh, we don't have that sports specific data. I do think that early on, um, you know, early on, the recovery is a little bit faster. But if they have the same outcome at six and 12 months, does it really matter? We know the complication rates are pretty equivalent. Uh, we know the outcomes are pretty equivalent. I just think it's a, you know, technically a minimal invasive procedure. And therefore, I'm, I'm not sure that the timeline is as important. Uh, but I do think there may be a subset of a specific athlete that may benefit from it a little bit more than others. Maybe that big cam soccer player, it, it's probably, you know, a wash. So that that's a perfect segue to the last thing I wanted to ask you. You know, as an experienced hip arthroscopist, are there any certain types or sizes of cam lesions that you are sending over to your partner to do a surgery? Or maybe you do the surgical hip dislocation. I'm not sure, but are there any where you're saying that's not a scope cam, that's a surgical dislocation cam? Yeah, I'd have to say in my practice, um, you know, cam lesions. I uh, still believe that I can address them uh, arthroscopically. Um, I'm not, not sure I've seen one that I felt like 
uh, we needed to send to my partners because of um, because of the cam lesion itself. Now, that being said, um, I, I can tell you uh, just you know having done it for ten or twelve years, I think really big pincers are hard to scope, and um, you know especially early on in your career. Um, and I, and I've still even recently within the last two or three years had a pincer. I just couldn't distract well enough where I felt like I could do an adequate job. And I, I don't do my surgical hips, but c- can convert it to a surgical hip. So, uh, you know, I do think they're, you know, large pincers. I'm a little bit more nervous, um, about and, and body habitus. Uh, some of the really big, maybe post skiffy deformities, those can be very hard with the scope. They can be hard open as well. Uh, but I've, broken every camera in our hospital trying to scope a really big, yeah. you know, a, a very large, you know, high BMI case as well. So those are ones that you have to be very cautious of and you need to have your surgical hip partner or you need to have the availability to convert if you need to um, in those settings. Speaking of those kind of decision points between open and arthroscopic, one of the things that we talk a lot about and this is coming from somebody who who doesn't do either of them except in the setting for trauma. But um, we talk a lot about, you know, those borderline dysplastic hips. And you pointed out in the paper, you know, pretty specifically that none of the patients in this particular study had a lateral center edge angle of, of less than uh, 18. But those sort of borderline dysplastic patients, how do you guys, what's your algorithm for that? And, and how do you make those decisions in the setting of open versus arthroscopic, because there is some early literature coming out that those those patients may not do as well with, with arthroscopy. Oh, yeah. I mean, and Julia, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, this is the most unanswered area in hip preservations as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, I think the 23 to 8, the center edge angle of, of 20, of 18 to 23 is, is that borderline is, is really a tough, tough patient. And, you know, so much so, uh, you know, Jeff Neppel's got a great grant looking at that right now, uh, a great prospective cohort. Um, you know, we just uh, about, uh, I think, six months ago, AJSM uh, published our series. And what we found is that if you had a center edge angle of less than 22 degrees, you had a 50% chance of a secondary surgery. That's a big deal. Um, and so I clearly made that, I clearly have made that mistake to underplay those and not understanding the three-dimensional deformity well enough to have a better feel for those borderline dysplastics. And so I really believe in the in the adolescent population in which they are a little bit more lax, you gotta be hypercritical on the three-dimensional safety of the acetabulum. And now, um, anytime I get a patient who I think has impinging symptoms, but has a center energy of less than 22 degrees, we talk about whether it's instability, whether it's impingement and we now get ultrasounds on all of them to look to see if there's any motion a dynamic ultrasound and um you know nowadays i I really don't like scoping them nearly as much because i don't think we're as effective as an arthroscopist to address uh the borderline dysplastics within a certain criteria i I think you have to really look at the three-dimensional picture and make sure that you know it is an impinging lesion and not an instability lesion but you got to do a little bit more due diligence than just your center edge angle Yeah, absolutely. That's super helpful. And the dynamic ultrasound that you guys are doing, are you doing that in office yourself? Who does that? How are you incorporating that into your workflow? I did ultrasound as a fellow um, when I was at SickKids. So I feel like I can do it, but I haven't been doing it. So I'm probably not as good as I used to be. 
Um, and we have a, uh, you know, we have a, a non, uh, non-operative pediatric sports medicine uh, physician uh, who's really good with the ultrasound. He has a clinical interest in it. If he's available, it'll be kind of a same day lateral uh, transfer to do a diagnostic ultrasound or they'll all, I'll even ask the families to come back and get it because I think it's so valuable. Cool. That's super helpful. Thank you. And I wanted to sort of ask about the other side of the spectrum, the, back to the sort of instead of the undercoverage, the overcoverage, those pincer patients. You know, the more I sort of start to think I'm understanding about the hip, the more I, I think that a lot of those pincers are, are retroversion or a, an anteriorly tilted pelvis. There's been, I think, a trend towards a lot of those that would have been getting a pincer resection in the past, getting a, an antiverting PAO to reorient at your institution, how do you how do you draw that line between who gets a, a rim trim and who gets uh, a reoriented acetabulum? Yeah, I'll tell you. You know, I think in the adolescent population, uh, the majority of uh, my uh, majority of my acetabular work is primarily in the subspine. I, I think a lot of subspine impingement right there at that gotcha. kind of one to two o'clock region. Uh, you know, I'm not excited being aggressive with retroversion. Um, I think. Uh, you know, I learned that. Uh, I, you know, I, I've learned that from our colleagues uh, across across the sea. That you know, if you really try to uh, take away some of the chondral surface on a retroverted uh, acetabulum, you maybe you know uh, you may be taking away part of their weight bearing dome. And so you really want you know their lunate surface is not quite as robust as we think it is. So um, you know that is a case by case question. I think we have to be really cautious in retroversion of the acetabulum. Again, that's uh, to me, that's more of a multidisciplinary approach with my, you know, with the hip team here at Scottish Rite uh, to have a better idea. You know, is this is this a little bit of a trim or is this a, you know, kind of a reverse PAO or um, an anverting PAO uh, setting? So, yeah, I mean, I think you have to be really cautious with that. And I'm probably not as aggressive as some uh, with that picture you're pointing, Carter. Gotcha. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. That subspine impingement is what you're getting at. Got it. Any other, any other questions or shall we uh, stir the pot? All right, moving right along. So uh, for the audience, good news. A lot of controversies are about to be settled definitively. Uh, so Dr. Ellis, uh, I obviously have to ask, what is, what is the uh, the best ACL graft choice? Depends on the age of the patient. Oh, I knew you were going to give me a stipulation. But what's your favorite? Uh, I really like the uh, I really like an iliotibial band, you know, extra articular, extra seal. Yeah, uh, referred to as uh, McKaylee Coker or modified Macintosh. I love that surgery, um, but I, I'm, I'm you know I'm an old fashioned guy. I just I love the gold standard old fashioned BTB. So those are probably my two favorite surgeries. Uh, is there much transition towards quad uh, autographed at, at TSRH or still mostly BTB? Yeah, huge transition for quad. Um, I'm really involved with the score registry, which is quality improvement, kind of sports medicine. Uh, we're just coming out with an article that shows a dramatic change in an increase in quad autographed uh, with a with a kind of a decline in the hamstring as well. So, yeah, I think we're seeing that here. I've certainly done more quads in the last two years. So uh, it's a great option, but I still love a BTV, still love an IT band and everything else is in the middle. Awesome. That's good segue. You mentioned the, the Michaeli Coker technique, which sort of automatically... Uh, reconstruct your ALL for you. Who else, who are you doing an LET for, if anyone? Yeah, I think, I think, I think we have to start, I mean, I think we got to think very seriously about an LET on most all individuals. I consider anyone with high risk um, is needing an LET. So increase in posterior slope, hyperlaxity, uh, hyperextension, uh, revision, high-grade pivot shift, 
those would be my criteria, uh, you know, and then every once in a while I decide to do them because I just have a gestalt that this patient is a high risk of failure and I probably don't, they don't categorize in any one of those. So I think those Perfect. are the high points. And um, next, uh, if you don't mind looking into your crystal ball in 10 years, will there be more bear procedures, the same amount of bear procedures or less bear procedures going on? Oh, wow. That's a tough one, Carter. How do I, uh, how do I answer this? No, one? no softballs on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to pull this uh, up in 10 years I, and look too. <laughs> I, I think we'll probably see in, uh, I think we'll probably see an increase uh, in bear procedures. You heard it here first, folks. What about the the MPFL? There are so many options, which always means there's not a perfect option. What's what is, uh, in your opinion, the the best MPFL reconstruction technique? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, MPFL uh, uh, allograft is a preferred choice. I think that's a no brainer. Um, I like to use a socket technique on the femur uh, with the Nautilus anchor device, and I put uh, two anchors uh, within the patella um, to suture down on the patella. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a fairly routine, um, and, you know, I like, a, I like a double tail on the patella to try to, uh, replicate more of an anatomic MPFL because it's more like a triangle with a single spot on the femur, a little bit more of a, a spread, uh, on the superior, the superior third of the patella and into the quad. All right. I want you to tell me if I'm crazy. So I've, I've historically done the same thing, made a little trough on the patella to put two sutureless anchors in the patella and then put my allograft in there and sutured it in and then sutured the periosteum over it to give it a really snug sort of fixation on the patella. And one day I was like, why am I futzing around with these anchors? Why don't I just put it in the trough and sew it into this super strong periosteum? So that's become my technique and I haven't had one fail yet. Is, is that is that craziness or do you think that has legs? No, I love it. I think it's great. Uh, I think sometimes, um, you know, I guess, um, I, I guess I'm just a little bit more used to doing my, my routine and my rhythm. Uh, but when you get to a little bit more of like that 17, 18 year old, sometimes that periosteum is not as robust. For sure. For sure. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think in your, you know, young 10, 11, 12 year old boy, that's probably all you need. No, I don't think you're crazy. I'll let you know tomorrow when one comes back with a repeat dislocation, uh, torn right off the patella. Now that we've talked about it, that's exactly, happen. exactly. How about uh, how about your skeletally immature, open physis, stable OCD in the knee patient coming in? Uh, you know, baseball player. You tell them they're going to be out for a while, and they're crying in clinic. How long are you going to non-op them before you're going to uh, drill it if they're still symptomatic? I mean, I think there's a shared decision-making model. Uh, I usually, um, you know, I really like uh, Eric Wall's JVJS article on yep. prediction of OCDs. Mm -hmm. I literally will print it out. I'll go over it with the families. Uh, I think size, location um, is obviously very, very important. Uh, and then temperament of the family, right? I mean, you have uh, you have a couple families that are like, we do not want surgery no matter what, and we'll wait a year. That's fine. Uh, you know, that, that's that's up to you. And then you have, you know, uh, <clears throat> I do I do think that sometimes a baseball, uh, you know, a baseball family can be pretty intense. And sometimes, you know, they don't want to wait a year and uh, they'll give you three months. And if you're not seeing any progression over three months, then, you know, I think it's not unreasonable to drill. For OCDs, uh, I, I find it more beneficial and I try to educate families. I'm, I find it more beneficial to see an OCD over a sequence so I can understand the personality of the way it's acting versus a snapshot of it. I mean, and we see that with fracture to fracture healing. And so I try not to make 
on ones that I think are stable. I try not to ever uh, make a decision about surgical right away. At least I would like to give a, you know, I'd like to give at least a serial images just to see, you know, hey, boys, some of these heal really quick. Some of them take a year, but let's not make any decisions until we can see kind of how this one's going to act. So so in, in your clinic, is anyone, if I come in and, uh, you know, my son's got the OCD and I'm just like, can we just drill it now? Can we not potentially waste three months and then drill it? Is that an option or is that just too aggressive in this day and age? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, no, I do not think it's necessarily too aggressive in the right setting. So if it's an OCD where we have a 50-50 shot, like 50, maybe, you know, maybe 60-40, um, you know, 60-40, you know, it may need surgery, it may not. Uh, pretty reasonable, just depending on the time. Uh, the family's well aware of the risks, and they have a good level of understanding of the disease, the disease pathology, and the, the prediction that it may heal without surgery. But if you're talking about an OCD that should heal 70% or greater, I'd find a really hard time, even if the parents were super dogmatic, I'd probably tell them they need to find, you know, I'd probably say you don't need this. And if that's what you want, you probably need to go somewhere else. Love it. Yeah. Um, it sounds like a great approach. Tough, long, long conversations often with that shared decision making. Um, and lastly, uh, what do you think is the right answer on turf fields? Should high schools be getting rid of turf fields? Uh, are they fine? Yeah, really hot topic. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of different qualities of turf probably needs to be a part of the conversation. But, uh, you know, I think the reality is we are seeing a lot of injuries with turf. Um, you know, tough question to answer. Probably a lot depends on uh, the quality of turf. I wouldn't necessarily say we got to get rid of them all, uh, but I think you got you got to look at your high school, your injury profile. If you're seeing quite a bit of injuries, you need to reconsider what you're doing, maybe reconsidering whether you, the turf is worthwhile or not. Um, certainly, I would say on the safe side, you know, turf's not a good idea. I was going to just ask, you know, we touched on Skippy a little bit, uh, Dr. Ellis, with that first conversation. And you're a protector of hips. I can, I can see it in your eyes. So if you've got a kid who comes in with a moderate slip, and you fix them in site two, but you know they've got this residual deformity. How aggressive are you in going back in and scoping them and fixing it and keeping them from tearing up their joint versus do you let them have symptoms and start to degenerate a little bit? I used to, I used to early on in my career, I wanted to be really aggressive with them just for that reason, um, but I just haven't seen it. Um, you know, I'm sure it's seen me, but I continue to examine these post giffy deformities i really see them in clinic i really am like are you, are you i try to do an impingement sign are, are you sure this doesn't hurt and they're like no man i'm fine leave me alone let me get back to doing it and and so I, i've even tried to you know re really try to convince myself and the patient that they have some impingement that we need to address but i just would say in my practice here in texas even those mild skiffy deformities uh, that i feel like have that bump unless they're clinically symptomatic I don't operate on them. I educate the family. We talk about when they develop symptoms. I just don't say, I just don't believe they're as symptomatic. And it may be related to their activity level. You know, they may not be that athlete that's doing the repetitive motion on their hip. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, they got to be symptomatic. I just don't see it a lot. Sounds familiar, actually. Great answer. Uh, so with that, let's take a little break from the show to hear from this month's sponsor, Nuvasive. So at this point, I am joined by the one and only Dr. Bob Cho from the Shriners Hospital in Los Angeles, and we're going to talk a little bit about his involvement with Nuvasive and uh, some of their educational opportunities. 
Thanks so much, Carter. It's uh, really an honor to be on this podcast. Um, I listen to it frequently uh, and I learned so much. I want to thank uh, Nuvesa for being such a great corporate partner for us uh, with POSNA and uh, everything that we do. Um, they have all kinds of educational content that's really relevant to what we do. Uh, and upcoming at this uh, ICIOS meeting, we have a awesome symposium the Tuesday night before the meeting with uh, many faculty that I think everyone knows. Peter Sturm is my co-moderator, and we have an all-star lineup, including Lindsay Andrus, Mark Erickson, Mike Lotzbecker, Paul Grabala, uh, tenor game, uh, Mr. David Marks, Amy McIntosh, and Amr Samdani. We're going to have a case-based discussion and then drinks and dinner afterwards. Uh, would love to see everyone there. If not, happy to catch you at the next Nuvasive event at IPOS or at the POSNA annual meeting. Yeah, it sounds great. I uh, personally plan to attend. For any trainees and people listening who haven't gotten that far in their career, ICHIOS is the International Congress on Early Onset Scoliosis. It's the uh, annual meeting of the Pediatric Spine Study Group. It's really a, a phenomenal study group that accomplishes a lot. And I and I think a lot of us are looking forward to uh, to that meeting and to, to this new base of seminar in just over a week. Yeah, thanks, Carter. I agree. Every time I go to Ikios, I, I learn so much. It's a subject for us that changes all the time. All the technology changes, all the technique changes. Uh, and so I really enjoy going every year. Well, thank you so much for taking a minute to join us here on the show. And with that, we'll we'll get back to the content. Thanks. So uh, with that, let's let's head to the lightning round. We're going to hit some of the recent publications. Uh, who would like to kick us off? Josh, Craig, Julia? I can kick us off. So let's um, start with a study out of your institution, actually. So this was a couple of former guests on the show. Um, lead author was Dr. Greenhill when he was a fellow there. It must have been when he when he looked up this cohort. But the study is um, this month's JPO, and it's entitled Metaphyseal Fracture Displacement is Predictive of Intraarticular Diastasis in Adolescent Triplane Ankle Fractures. So what they did is, uh, you know, like so many things, all of the classifications and all of the indications for operative and non-operative have historically all been radiograph-based. And like so many things, we're now starting to shift into axial imaging and CT-based and trying to compare and contrast and see if we can get a better understanding of fractures. And we talked about some of these transitional fractures on the show um, last month, actually. So it's certainly something people are looking at. But they looked at a large cohort of patients who had all come through Scottish Rite over 10 years, and they had 87 patients with triplane fractures of the tibia and looked at displacement on sagittal and coronal um, x-rays and compared the diastasis and the step-off and gapping on the CT scan. So my question to the four of you is, how much displacement do you need on a lateral ankle x-ray to indicate a operative level of step-off at the joint line, um, which they defined as 2.5 millimeters or more on a CT scan. So on a lateral x-ray, how much metaphyseal step-off do you need to see to have a strong predictor that the ankle joint has more than 2.5 millimeters of step-off? I'll say 3 millimeters. Okay. How are they measuring step-off? Right, just on the lateral, the amount of gap that you, amount of displacement that you can see. Shortest distance between two points. Four. Four, and Dr. Ellis said three. Uh, so I, I think it's between three and four. Okay, the answer is one millimeter. Oh. So in their series, 
in their series, if there was one millimeter of metaphyseal step off on a lateral x-ray, they had a 94% positive predictive value of more than two and a half millimeters of articular step off on the CT. So you can imagine that shifts things a lot, at least in my mind. Um, you know, I get CTs on most of these anyway to see the joint, but certainly this pushes again more to that we really underestimate. And there, they, this echoed some previous studies. They showed that the x-ray underestimated most of the step off on the coronal and sagittal plane by at least two times, 177%, 229%, 184% of different step off in different planes. So essentially we're at least, we're at least twice as bad as we think we are. And if we look at the lateral, that was the most sensitive um, with 94% positive predictive value, one millimeter step off on the metaphysis was two and a half or more at the joint. So it argues if you see that, at least get a CT. So if you see an x-ray with a, a millimeter on the metaphysis, at least get a CT to confirm that, that there's not more than two and a half if you're going to choose not up. It makes you wonder if the authors were like, surely we don't need all these CTs. We can prove that we uh, can skip some of these patients. Oh, oh no, shoot. We, we need yeah. to get all the CTs. I mean, is it just safe to say any step off? I mean, I, I'm, my measurement error is more than one millimeter. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, correct. I mean, that's yeah. essentially what it is. Is yeah. so on the lateral, you off. see that metaphysical spike there. Um, there's some there's some step at the joint in 95, at least on their study, 95%. All right, and then completely unrelated, cast saw burns. This study, I don't know why Carter picked it. He must have, uh, must be in cahoots with this. Uh, in the cast saw company. Cast blade. No. <laughs> um, looking at cast saw burns. Um, so this is the uh, Shriners Hospital in Kentucky that looked at temperature generation um, comparing stainless steel blades new and worn versus uh, tungsten disulfide coated blades new and worn cutting both uh, plaster and fiberglass um, so what blade do you guys think generated less heat i'm assuming the new coated one i'm gonna do it yes fortunately the tungsten coated blade generated less heat and what they didn't actually hit on too much was how much hotter the fiberglass got than the plaster. I guess I don't know that I would have predicted that, but pretty much in all the different things, new and worn and used and otherwise, um, the tungsten coated was better and fiberglass gets a lot hotter. I don't know how many of you guys have ever had a cast saw burn that you've caused. Julie, I, had a, a I, I had a pretty bad one recently that was uh, surprising to me because I'm pretty anal about my saw blades, um, especially in the OR. And uh, I was uh, just, uh, I was personally doing it. It wasn't a trainee. I split a cast in the OR after an ankle fracture and he came back and it was a pretty bad one. And was, um, it, was it right over the medial mal or lateral mal or something? Or where was it? It was, it was all the way up on both sides. It was wild. And I hadn't, you know, I, like I said, I'm pretty anal about my cast saw blades. I, I put on the cast too. Um, so I had literally nobody to blame, but myself, but that was a, it was a good, um, this has been kind of a hot topic recently, but it was a good reminder that we can, this can happen to anybody. Yeah. So. We, we still have them, you know, occasionally. And, uh, I think it's usually when the resident is univalving a cast with the patient still sedated after the reduction in the emergency department. And that's why I thought this, this, uh, paper was interesting because it was like, you know, anything we can do to reduce the risk of that. Cause sometimes I fear that the cast saw blade just gets used until 
it's too obvious that it's worn out or someone gets a burn. So, you know, I don't know if using these blades would eventually lead to the same problem and they just get overused or if it would uh, help us reduce the risk of that happening. It's a good topic for that a, that, a, that a cast is not a benign treatment, right? I mean, between yeah. your pressure sores that we've all seen, your heel sores, uh, the cast saw burns. I mean, you know, I, so many times uh, I've come in and, and the residents put a cast, long leg cast on something I would put a, a you know, hinge range of motion brace locked in extension, right? And so same, same thing with the distal radius, right? So distal radius, it could be easily treated with Velcro removable splint. Uh, they put a short arm cast on. So, um, you know, it's definitely... Uh, you know, more immobility with a cast doesn't mean better. Absolutely. Um, I, that's probably a good article transition to another another thing we do routinely that we don't think about the harm, and that's a dermabond application. So this is a study looking at the incidence of skin sensitivity following dermabond application in peds orthopedic surgery specifically. Um, they've looked at it in other patient types and adults. So the adult rates of sensitivity issues are like 0.5 to 2.8%. So what do you guys predict the percentage or the incidence? This is a per year rate of a dermabond issue is what percentage of patients in peds ortho? Julia, Josh. Five. 8.6. Dr. Ellis. Seven. It is 14%. So Boston Children's study Catherine Koritz, uh, lead author, Ben Shore, senior author. They had 234 patients in a one-year time period from a subgroup of surgeons that used this quite a bit. And they looked at erythema and itchiness, and it was retrospective. So I think it's you know sometimes tough to look back on the chart and say, okay, this is definitely a skin reaction versus you know, just a dehiscence or a superficial infection, that sort of thing. But you know, the authors state that, that they would probably maybe underestimate and miss things uh, as opposed to overestimate. Uh, the other interesting thing here was that they looked at patients who had had prior surgery and dermabond before versus those who've had it for the first time. And 12% of the patients who was their first time they had it, uh, they, they had a skin reaction versus it was 21% of patients that had repeat exposures. Um, and so uh, this, this can lead to maybe a messy issue that results in some discomfort for the patient or need for antibiotics or sometimes even a washout and reclosure procedure. Um, and so something to think about and maybe a risk to know and tell families. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I don't know if this will change the way any of y'all think about dermabond or how, how much you apply it, but. Um, you know, I, I was sort of laughing when I read it because I had actually gone the opposite direction. I used to use a lot of mastosol and steri strips and felt like I was getting a lot of skin reactions from one of those, presumably the massasol, but I don't know which one. And so I've, you know, over the last year to gone to using a lot more Dermabond with the specific intent of trying to reduce those skin reactions. And I feel like it has, uh, but that's totally anecdotal. And, you know, I think this shows that it's still happening with the Dermabond. Yeah, it's funny yeah. how we all do stuff so different. You know, the four of us trained at the same place and I don't use Dermabond and specifically don't use some of the mesh glued on. There's a few different brands of that in any revision case or a second surgery case, because the, you know, the handful of what I would call real significant reactions that I've seen to the glue or to the mesh glued on have all been in second surgeries, hardware removal, as we think it's a chip shot. And so I, I tell the residents that I say, I have no actual proof that this is true, but to me, it seems like, like a secondary reaction that they have because I see it when I've seen it bad, it's all been in second timers. 
The mastocell steroids thing is interesting because that's been my that, that's my go to still. Um, and there's definitely my guess is it's probably a similar rate. I think it's just it's a sensitivity to issue to to adhesives that I don't know that there's a good solution to it. You know, because I I've seen yeah. it with both. And it has definitely seemed to me with the mastocell steroids that it was the second procedure. I totally agree anecdotally again. But so I initially was like, all right, for all the revision surgeries, I'll use Dermabond. And then eventually I was like, I just, I haven't been getting problems with the Dermabond. I'll just use it on everyone. But I'm clearly anecdotally underestimating the problems. All right. Um, Another one is, uh, I won't give you the title yet. I'll just ask you if you're uh, resecting an ABC and bone grafting it, do surgical adjuvants decrease the rate of recurrence? Yes, no, depends on the adjuvant. This is referring to argon beam, phenol, doxycycline, liquid nitrogen, high-speed burr, et cetera. No. I think if you're curating it and grafting it, then the other stuff doesn't matter. Agreed. Ellis, you said no. Sanders, no. You're all nihilists. Uh, the answer is no. So this is a study from Brandon Gettleman and Alexander Christ, uh, CHLA. It was a retrospective single-center study. They looked back at 129 patients over many years uh, with ABCs histologically proven, six to 105 months of follow-up, uh, 70% of the cohort had adjuvant treatment, and the overall recurrence rates were um, 24.8%. And if you compare adjuvant to no adjuvant, it was 25.3 versus 23.7. So essentially the same, no difference. Um, but we don't really have a good sense of if these groups differed by surgeon or year or size or location on the body. I don't it's maybe not the perfect randomized study from a comparison standpoint, but um, overall, yeah, rates are pretty comparable. Perfect. I'll take us home. Um, so the first one we'll talk about is out of CHOP, and it's about the psychosocial effects of pavlik harness treatment. And so they looked prospectively at perceived impact on families and maternal infant bonding. So question for you guys do you think that pavlik harness treatment and let's say six weeks of pavlik harness treatment um, affected maternal or parental bonding? Yes or no? I'm going to say no. I feel like it's a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on how the study is set up, right? Because I kind of let families choose uh-huh. and they love whatever they decide. And they think okay. whatever they decide it was the best. See, okay. I, think it's, I think it's the opposite. I think it's how you sell it. So if you sell it as this Pavlik is going to save your kid's hip for the rest of the next 80 years, that mom doesn't care about the harness. She wants the hips saved. And so it's not going to impact her at all. Okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, so it, it was interesting. They used um, this score that I wasn't familiar with, but it's a, it's a revised impact on family scale. And so um, worse scores are higher. And it was interesting because, uh, you know, initially at that first visit, um, there was a very small impact and then it went down from there to six weeks. And so uh, never did any of those impact scores uh, surpass the threshold of, of clinical concern. 
And um, age at initiation did not have a statistical effect on parental bonding or family functioning. And then neither did any other demographic variables like birth order or parental history of any mental illness, socioeconomic disadvantage. So, you know, their conclusion was that this really doesn't significantly impact maternal fetal bonding or family dynamics. Um, they did only look at it for six weeks. And uh, the other thing is they point out that, you know, the, the impact of family life is maybe more significant than some of the other short-term things that we do, um, like single egg spica was an example they used, um, but certainly nothing close to a, a chronic medical illness. So, Can I just clarify, right. when I said I give families a choice, if their hips dislocate and I don't give them a choice... <laughs> I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm talking about for the me, Dr. Lauer, you can pick whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. you, want you want your knee scope for your OCD tomorrow? Sure, whatever Perfect. you want. I'm talking about those those graph two A's where you can go either way. I think those yeah. families are happy no matter what. So if they're Absolutely. all dislocated hips, I think those moms kind of resent having to uh, wear it. Although maybe they're in the end accepting of the benefits. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And then um, the second one is recovery of gait in children and adolescents after pediatric femoral shaft fracture treated with intramedullary nail fixation. Um, and so this is a gait lab study um, and, and brings up some things that I think I think about a lot because I take care of a lot of femur fractures, um, but I think provides some interesting data for us on family counseling. So um, let's ask it this way. What percent of patients are walking without assistive devices at six weeks? And these are primarily children treated with flex nails. Not many, 25%. Okay. Anybody I mean, else? I guess I don't, I don't ever like routinely use assistive devices. So uh, at hobbling around maybe at six weeks, I would say probably more than half, 60%, 65%. 35%. Yeah, this was shockingly high to me. 88% were still using walking aids at six weeks. That was down to 25% at 12 weeks. And at six weeks, 69% could walk up and down stairs. At 12 weeks, 100% could do so. Um, but what was super interesting to me was it actually took six months for the majority of patients to completely normalize um, their stance and step length. And I think I think that's, you know, what's interesting is they're, these are mostly flex nails because at first you think, okay, well, that makes sense. You know, you're doing an anagrade femoral nail. You're going through the abductors. They're going to have a Trendelenburg. But this is even in kids that have retrograde flex nails placed. So I think this has, it has a bigger um, impact than we think. Um, and maybe part of that is due to not being aggressive enough with rehab. This, this study was done in Sweden. Um, and it's not super high numbers, but I think it's it's interesting and maybe something we should pay a little more attention to. So, man, I've seen that. I I tell every family, I say your kid is going to limp for four to six months, and it's not going to hurt. You don't need to worry about it. It's not a bad sign. I, when I started, I was just shocked at how many kids families would call at three, four months, or come back very nervous and worried, like. They're still limping. And so I just started telling people it's a it's a six month sex. So I'm a, I'm happy to see that I'm not just totally making that up. I think that's a great point you bring up that it's it's not a problem because that's my experience too. They they might be limping a little, but they're like out at PE playing kickball, yeah. running around the bases with this little like itch in their giddy up. I I had the fortunate or however you want to 
classified opportunity of taking care of one of my neighbors uh, femoral shaft fractures with flexi nails. Um, and so I, I feel like I've got a daily, weekly, <laughs> monthly report um, and I got to see him outside. And so I actually go even further and I say they will not run normally for a year. Wow. Um, because I, I, I've seen it and, and the parents have reminded me that I underplayed that. Um, so even going back and playing basketball at six, seven, eight, nine months are still like, that's still not his run. So I say a year. There you go. Yeah. So maybe, maybe we should all be just uh, being a little more conservative in our counseling with that. I think we should all operate on our neighbors to uh, learn more about <laughs> yeah, the recovery studies. I all three of my kids. I just did them <laughs> so I can follow them daily. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're all wearing bending casts around the house. <laughs> Um, well, Dr. Ellis, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining us and for your time. I've learned a bunch of things. You were very clear thinking and insightful. And uh, this is, this has really been a great episode. So thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you guys having me. And uh, we should have said from the beginning, you guys just call me Henry. <laughs> we're all colleagues here. <laughs> Appreciate that. Now that we made it through the episode, it feels more appropriate. There you go. Yeah, I should have said <laughs> at the beginning. Thank you very much. Yeah, we appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Thank you guys. Appreciate you having me. Great time. Thank you. Yes, sir. Okay. Good seeing everyone.